Okay, all right. Well, in our first year in the Hampton Roads, we spent a lot of time doing things to sort of help us acclimate to Virginia. We are originally from California, and so we're, we're here on orders. Uh, and so we did a lot of, a lot of different things. And, and one Sunday, with the, with the help of a family friend, um, Kate, are you here? She's not. She's somewhere. Uh, we, we scored some incredibly affordable tickets to a play or a, sorry, to a ballet called Swan Lake. Has anybody ever seen Swan Lake before? Okay, three people? Okay, so 15 people? Okay, there you go. Okay. So, um, in a word, it was, it was, it was stunning. Uh, my wife and I were, were taken, uh, engulfed, if you will, in the story of Odette, a princess turned into a swan by an evil sorcerer's curse. Um, gentlemen, if you're asking whether um, you cannot take my man card, uh, men watch, watch ballets all the time. I'm fully secure in my manhood. Amen? Okay. But by the intermission, um, I was hungry, and so, so I moved out to the aisle, or to, to get out of the aisle, and I looked over at the person sitting next to me, uh, one who will remain nameless, and they were there, slouched over, knocked out, uh, hitting the third stage of their REM cycle. Um, there, was, there was so much drool, I, I mean, you could fill a small pool with it. I mean, it was just really, it was a lot there. Uh, and so I, so I guess that's the, that's the gift of theater, truly a place to help us dream. Um, so, uh, but I, I, don't, I don't know if you like the theater or not, uh, or you like going to the theater from time to time here in the Hampton Roads, but if you've gone, uh, if you had gone to the theater in Athens, say in the 5th century BC, you might have seen a play by a man named Aeschylus. Uh, one play that he wrote, uh, sort of a part of a trilogy, but one of those uh, he wrote was called The Eumenides. And it's the sort of ancient Greek telenovela, right? Has anybody ever seen a telenovela before? Okay, wonderful. Uh, they get more done in 30 minutes and I get done in five years. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing, watch Telemundo one day. Anyhow, um, so, so Eumenides is about this man called Orestes who killed his mother because his mother murdered his father. Uh, the mother murdered the father because the father made a sacrifice of the daughter, right? Orestes' sister, right? And so you get the, the plot. This is, there's this never-ending cycle of retribution. This thing is ugly. That's why it's called a Greek, or it's why it is a Greek tragedy. And so, so he ends up, um, Orestes ends up in Athens before the, the court of the Areopagus, or, uh, yeah, Areopagus, the exact place where, where St. Paul would stand just five centuries later, and Orestes, of course, is being charged with murder. And they're calling for the death sentence. And so the question on the table is, um, do we take his life or do we not? And, and defending him is none other than the god Apollo, right? The god of the sun, of light, of knowledge, of poetry, etc. And, and he says, he defends Orestes by saying this. He says, no. Um, no, no, we, we won't put him to death because it's way too, it's way too final. Um, it's way too severe. It's far too reversible, he tells the, the, the court. And, and then he offers 
these words, words that would become very famous in, in the Greek culture. He says this. He says that once a man dies, once a man dies and the earth drinks down his blood, there is no resurrection. Once a man dies and the earth drinks down his blood, there is no resurrection. Right? This is Aeschylus um, in the 5th century. There is no resurrection. Right? And, and likely they were performing this play of Aeschylus for hundreds of years, just like we perform Shakespeare's Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet or Macbeth 400 years later. Right? And so in Corinth, um, many people believed that. It was a very common idea. Right? They believed in the immortality of the soul. They, they believed that something would happen to us after death in some mysterious underworld. But, but the resurrection of the body? Come on. Um, the idea that dead people would come back to life was impossible. Maybe a, a bit ridiculous and, um, and actually, in fact, quite laughable. And, and that's what they did to Paul. Right? 500 years after this, he went to Athens, and, and he stood at the same place publicly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and the resurrection. This is in Acts chapter 17. Right? This is the, the, Paul uses the exact word, resurrection, from Eumenides, the same word that the Areopagus court believed could not happen. And so when Paul was, was brought before the court to explain, some believed but most mocked. Uh, they laughed at him. Right? They knew that it, that it couldn't happen. And isn't that sort of a prevailing idea even in our own culture? Right? And so, so what Paul does is that he goes west. Right? He travels some 50 miles to, to Corinth and preaches the cross and resurrection of Jesus there, and some believe. But make no mistake, though, there, there are some of those Corinthian uh, believers who are questioning the resurrection, right? They, they couldn't shed that cultural understanding. It was a, an assumption that was very deeply embedded in their thinking. And so you can, you can imagine someone saying, well, I mean, there's, there's no resurrection. That's what Aeschylus said. And, and maybe Jesus died, and maybe he's, he's living in our hearts in some way. Um, and maybe we have immortal souls, and, and maybe we'll, we'll go and be with him um, eventually in, in heaven. But the resurrection of the dead, well, there's no, there's no real resurrection, right? And, and, and Paul is aghast. What? Um, how can some of you say this, that, that there is no resurrection of the dead, according to verse 12 in, in 1 Corinthians 15, which leads Paul to write, um, that chapter, one of the longest chapters in all of the New Testament, to persuade and, and, and affirm the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all of those who are in Christ. And so Paul says, Paul says, if there's no resurrection, there is no gospel. If there's no resurrection, there is no salvation. If there is no resurrection, then there is no hope. And if there is no resurrection, then there's no point of all of this. Your faith is in vain, and you are most to be pitied. Again, if there's no resurrection, beloved, there is no, there is no gospel, Paul says. 
But what is, what is the gospel? Now, that's the question that I kept coming to me um, this week. If you, if you were to ask, if someone were to ask you that question, how would you define it? All right, what does it mean? And part of the issue is that we've tended to use this word as a sort of a vague shorthand for the few things that we like about the Christian faith, right? It's, it's a nice, clean solution to my sin problem, right? Um, me and God get together and he forgives my sin. It's, it's become this, this formula where, whereby I, I gain access into heaven, right? But that's a very different, um, it's, it's very different from the way that Paul describes the gospel, right? The gospel, the, the good news is about something that has happened. It's not good advice. It's not a good idea. It's not a new religion or a better philosophy. Paul says, no, I brought you good news, and this good news is contained, as he says, in four historical facts, right? That Christ has died, that he was buried, that he has been raised, and that he was seen. It's contained in those four historical facts. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today, right? And so I'll just go um, from one to four. Uh, Christ has died. All of the early Christians um, and uh, many non-Christians in the surrounding regions knew that, right? It was recorded in Roman and Jewish histories. It was and still an undeniable fact, Jesus died. So he died, right? But he was also buried. Um, and I, I sort of wondered why would the early church needed to include that, right? Well, probably because, you know, they had to insist that Jesus was truly dead. Um, because even in Paul's days, there were, there were rumors going around uh, that, didn't, that Jesus didn't actually die. Uh, there were rumors that he lost consciousness or some other rumors, things like that, that he later revived in the tomb, uh, in the tomb and was seen by his disciples, right? There's lots of different speculation that's out there. And so, um, and plus, I, I think it's important to know that there are some significant problems with that. Uh, John Stott says in his book, if you haven't read Basic Christianity, it is a must-read John Stott, Basic Christianity, just a shameless plug. Um, but he says this, he says, are we to believe that after the rigors and pains of trial, mockery, flogging, and crucifixion, he could survive 36 hours in, in a stone tomb with neither warmth, nor food, nor medical care? That, that he, he could then rally sufficiently to perform the superhuman feat of shifting the boulder that was in front of the mouth of the tomb, and, th and that this without disturbing the Roman guard. That then, weak and sickly and hungry, he could appear to the disciples in such a way to give them the impression that he had vanquished death. Right? That he could go on to claim that he had died and risen and could, could send them out all over the world and promise to be with them until the end of time. Such a view is incredible, is what Stott says. So, so suffice to say, um, the fact that he was buried was not only proof of his death, but it also anticipates that next point, which was he was raised or he has been raised because the tomb was empty. That's, my, that's that third part there. 
he has been raised. And this is it's interesting because I think our translations in the ESV says uh, he was raised, right? Which um, is a little bit of a, uh, is a little off. Um, there's, so it, it notice the passive voice, um, he was raised, which is, sorry, sorry that's, that's not the right thing. He was raised. <laughs> so, um, the phrase he was raised is a little different from the rest. Notice, notice the passive voice. He says he was raised, which was sort of a Jewish hand, uh, shorthand for, for God did it. Right? It, it wasn't just that Jesus died and rose again or that Jesus died and came back to life. Jesus didn't just die and come back. No, Jesus died and went on. Right? God raised him to new life to resurrection life. And God defeated death when he raised Jesus back to life. God did it. Right? And it's not only passive, but it's, it's in a different tense. Right? Um, he, the first one was that he died. The second one was that he was buried. These are sort of past tense events. Um, but the, the way that this is written is in perfect tense. It's he was raised, or he has been raised. Right? He is now alive. It's describing something that's happened uh, and has in effect in the present moment as well. And so the reason why this is, is so important is that Paul is writing to a people who live in a culture that tells them that there can be no resurrection ever. Right? Jews believed in a resurrection, but it, but it was at the last day when God will raise them up. And that's what Martha said um, to Jesus in John chapter 11, isn't it, that Jesus says to her, Lazarus will rise again. And she says, yes, Lord, I know. Um, he will rise again in the last day. Um, but Jesus uh, raises, raises Lazarus to life. And the gospel that Paul is announcing is that something that the Greeks said was, was inconceivable, that the Jews said happened in the future, is happening in time, in history, now. That, that God has already done for Jesus what he will do for all of those who belong to Jesus. Right? And so Paul confirms that in verse 23, um, if you read on in chapter 15. Um, so he says that he has died, that he's buried, that he has been raised, but he was also seen. And he says that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and the twelve. And he's just confirming the truth uh, of the gospel in these eyewitness accounts. You know, I, I think it's important for us to, to see how recent these accounts are. Um, the eyewitnesses um, Paul is referring to are still alive, and, and it's considered something like a couple of decades um, after the resurrection event that he's writing this, this letter. First uh, Corinthians is written something like 53 to 57 AD, um, so about like 25 years or so out of, um, after the resurrection. And, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke will write their Gospels five years after um, this letter is penned. Um, John writes in about 80 AD, but it's, it, it's about 25 years. Uh, it's a 25-year span, right? So if you think 25 years ago from now, or 25 years ago from 2019, uh, it's 1994, right? I think my, I think my math's right. Um, 25 years ago. Uh, 25 years ago, um, if you remember, I'm dating myself, O.J. Simpson uh, fled the police in his white Ford Bronco. Anybody remember that? Lord have mercy. Um, 
Major League Baseball, um, the Players Association began their 232-day their strike, which led to you know, um, the 1994 season to be canceled. Do you remember that? Right? Uh, Netscape Navigator, right? This, now I'm really dating myself. <laughs> was released and, and it sort of quickly became the market leader for browsing the web. Uh, in, in California, there was a very large earthquake. They call it the, the Northwick, Northridge earthquake, uh, 6.7 magnitude, very large, um, hit the San Fernando Valley. The African National Congress triumphs in its first multiracial elections, and Nelson Mandela becomes the first, um, becomes president of South Africa. Uh, very big, big uh, thing. Tanya Harding. Uh, that's all I'll say. Amen. Hottest, hottest. That was crazy. That was very bad. Um, hottest movies at the time: Shawshank Redemption. Great movie, great movie. Uh, the Lion King, Dumb and Dumber, um, great movie. <laughs> Pulp Fiction, you know, good stuff, okay. Uh, and then lastly, uh, Father Jamal was four feet, nine inches, 90 pound freshman in high school, right? All equally important facts of history. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's just not that long ago, right? Um, and so it's, it's sort of a bold claim to list the witnesses who are still living. And so these are eyewitness accounts that are really such an integral part of the gospel because it speaks to its validity. Right? So, so those are the facts, right, that he, was, he died, buried, he has been raised, and that he was seen. But what makes that good news? Right? What makes these gospel facts? Um, and I, I think, you know, in order to understand how and why this is good news, um, good news by which we are saved, says Paul, we must see the facts through the lens of Scripture. And Paul invites us to do that uh, when he uses repeatedly this phrase, Christ died for us or Christ was raised according to the Scriptures. That part is incredibly important um, because he, he reaches back to the Old Testament and what Paul is saying here is that what makes the death and resurrection of Jesus good news is that it fits in with all that we know about, uh, in, we know in the scriptures about God, right? That Christ died for our sin in accordance with the scriptures. Why? Because it's the Old Testament that shows us that the problem of sin is in its sort of basic story. Old Testament begins with the story of creation. Um, God creates the world, and it's good, and the animals, and places, and places humans within that world, and something goes wrong. Humans rebel against God and sin and disobedience, and as a result of that death, a result of that death enters into the world. And the effects become very, very clear. Paul says that at the end of chapter 15 that the sting of death is sin, and it's sin that deals uh, with death, and you must deal, you have to deal with both, right? And that's where the good news comes in. It's, it's in the Old Testament that God promises to deal with both, and he calls Israel into existence, and he shows us that the sin that leads to death can only be dealt with through death. And so Israel is saved from Egypt um, by the blood of the Passover lamb so they could live, right? Sacrifices were offered. Animals uh, shed their blood so that sin could be atoned for. But ultimately, the Bible shows us 
um, that ultimately this was not the way that God was going to deal with sin, um, going to deal with it forever. Uh, only God can do what the prophet Isaiah says, that I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. So how would he do that? And in Isaiah 53, um, I think I heard somebody say this morning that uh, Father Brian used to say or does say that Isaiah 53 is the fifth gospel. Isaiah is the fifth gospel. It is. It's fantastic. Please read it. Um, how would he do that? Uh, he would do that through the servant of the Lord who would bear the sin of the world through himself. Right? God, in the person of Jesus, chooses to take the sin and the death into himself and to bear it. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Right? Peter would say, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds we are healed. Right? When, when Jesus, the anointed Messiah, uh, God incarnate, when he died, he died for sins in accordance with the scriptures. The scriptures that said uh, that, that this would happen and, and what God would do. And so John the Baptist could, could say to his disciples, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Right? And so um, I suppose at the end of the day, there's a, there's a big so what? Right? Um, so what? Um, the question that we must ask ourselves is not whether we like Jesus' teaching. Um, the question before us all is what we will do with the empty tomb and the claims of Jesus. Right? Did he raise or did he not? We, we um, really, as sort of C.S. Lewis so clearly stated, we have three options here. Um, he is either, or uh, we can either determine that he is one, uh, that he's a liar. Right? Um, he's a liar because he claimed to be God and he is not. Or we can claim that he is a, a, luna, a lunatic. Um, if we encountered someone and they said to us, hey, I'm God in the flesh or I'm the son of God, our natural response would, would to be to call that person a crazy lunatic. Right? Um, in the Navy, um, we send those kind of folks to the fourth floor. Um, we, we do. Um, so he, he's either a liar or he's a lunatic um, or he is Lord right that is he is who he said he was right? so what do, you, what do you do with Jesus if he rose from the dead it changes everything right? the resurrection changes everything right? because Christ is risen then there is, there's good news, right? It changes history. It changes the world. It means that we're living in a different story. Bishop uh, Leslie Newbigin uh, would say this. He says, the simple truth is that the resurrection cannot be accommodated in any way of understanding the world except the one that is the starting point, right? So in a sense, what he's trying to say is that it means the resurrection must become the starting point for all of our living and all of our thinking, Right? If Christ is risen, there is salvation, right? And salvation has, has, has come into your life because God has dealt with the problem of sin. He is, he is he's bringing into fulfillment uh, the story from old to new, right? Because he carried and paid for it, I can be forgiven. 
If Christ is risen, then there is hope, right? If sin has been dealt with, then death has been too, right? And the ultimate weapon of the enemies of the gospel is death. And death has been reduced to um, sort of a, a Sunday afternoon nap, I suppose, um, as, as Paul says in verse 26. Uh, the power of sin is broken because death has been swallowed up in victory. So, beloved, if he is for us, if he is risen and he is for us, what on earth can stand against us? Amen. 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 As, we, as we close, I'd like to read a, a part of a poem from the late novelist and poet John Updike, um, entitled The Seven Stanzas at Easter. Uh, I will read four of those seven stanzas, but if you can, um, you can bow with me um, and... hear what Dr. Updike has to say to us. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecule re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the 11 apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength, to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. But let us walk through the door. Let us walk through the door. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.